Well, open up your Bibles back to the book of Philippians. I've entitled my message, Live Out What God Has Put In You. Live Out What God Has Put In You. Most of us understand the broad meaning of salvation. That term, salvation, is used in different ways in the New Testament. Most of us understand the basic meaning of salvation. Certainly, we've placed our faith in Christ's shed blood on the cross, which is the solvent that's greater than any other cleanser in the history of the universe because it washes away sin. So we've placed our faith in Christ's shed blood on the cross. We've received forgiveness of our sins, and now we're reconciled to God which brings us eternal life, which is a free gift. It's not something that we earn or even deserve. You might say, well, is there more? How could there be any more? Well, the New Testament proclaims that there is much, much more to salvation than just that. So the Bible answer is, yes, there's much more to salvation. Salvation has great implications not only for our eternity, but for us today. Salvation is affecting us today. It's not one and done. We move on and live our life. It's impacting us today. And that's really what Paul is talking about in this section of Scripture in chapter 2. Paul has just finished the wonderful kenosis passage I preached on three weeks ago. Kenosis means to empty. It's the Greek word to empty himself, and that's exactly what Jesus did. He emptied himself of his divine attributes that were very visible, his glory. Uh, He still was intact, that he was God, but he emptied himself of the glory that God always has with him, and he became a man. So Kenosis passage is the passage that just precedes this. And in this, it was the epitome of humility. Here is God becoming a man. We think of man becoming a worm, and that's not as big a jump as God becoming a man. So he becomes a man, and we certainly respect him for that. We admire him for that. But admiration for a great person may inspire us, but it cannot enable us. We may have great admiration for someone, but that doesn't make us become like them. We may have great admiration for what Christ did, and it inspires us, but it can't enable us to live like he lived. It takes more than an example from the outside. It takes, it takes the power of God on the inside for us to live for him. So it's not just, we're not just Christians trying to emulate Christ imitate Christ, we need his power to be able to live the Christian life. And that's what Paul is dealing with. The Christian life is not so much one of imitation, but one of incarnation. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I lived in the flesh, I now live by the power of the Son of God who lives in me. I live for him now. So he enables me to live the Christian life. If you want to be a frustrated Christian, just try to live the Christian life in your own strength. Just try to obey the commands of God. 613 Old Testament commands, but there's many commands in the New Testament. Just try to live the Christian life in your own strength. You'll become a frustrated Christian. 
It's not rule keeping. It's Christ living in you and through you. So in this section of Scripture, Paul highlights the three manifestations, the three outworkings, maybe we could say, of God's working in the life of a believer. What does it look like? What's the photograph look like when God is working in the life of a believer? He deals with that in verses 12 through 18. First of all, he says in verses 12 and 13 that God will be uh, showing you in spiritual growth. He'll be manifesting himself in spiritual growth. Real Christians keep on growing. The outward man perishes but the inward man is renewed day by day. So the outward man may not be getting better, may be getting more feeble, but the inward man is manifesting spiritual growth. That's why he says, look in verse 12 here. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not just when I was with you, not just because I was the apostle and I started the church and you wanted to please me, not just because when I was with you, uh, in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Notice the phrase, work out your own salvation. Okay? He says, work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation is very different than trying to work for your salvation. We could never work for our salvation. He says, let what is in you, what God has placed in you, come out. Sometimes we talk about going to the gym and working out. Kind of the same idea, modern equivalent. It's we're, we're working up a sweat. We're building our muscles. We're getting in shape. God says, what I've placed in you, let that come out now in your life. And notice what he says here in the very first verse of this book. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. So he calls them saints. We could literally go around and call one another saint. We'd probably feel a little uncomfortable about it, you know? If we called you Saint Jerry or Saint Les or Saint Zach or whatever it might be, we'd kind of, kind of cringe at that. But, but that's just what Christians are called. They're called saints. Saints are, are people who've been redeemed. Saints are not super Christians who've been canonized or venerated in some way by the church or a pope or something. Those are not necessarily saints. A saint is simply another biblical term for born-again believers. So he calls them saints. And he, so he's, he's getting in their head and he's saying, now your saints live like it. Maybe your parents said to you, uh, repeating your last name, your hinds live like it. Don't embarrass us. Live up to your name. That's what Paul is saying here when he calls them saying, He's saying, now, live out what God has done in you, what God has placed in you. Saint is simply another term for a born-again believer. We shouldn't feel uncomfortable with it. Notice what he says here, work out. We would translate that today, bring to completion. What God has started in your life, allow that to be full-blown, full-bloomed in your daily experience. Workout means bring to full completion. It describes the process of focusing on one's spiritual development. So when Paul says, work out your salvation, he's saying, you focus 
on the fact that you now belong to God, you've been born again, you're a saint, you focus on becoming the type of Christian that God would be pleased by, that God would be honored by, by how you live. That's what he's saying. It describes the process of focusing on your spiritual development. It is putting our position into practice in our daily experience. The terms were used in the ancient world to describe getting a field ready to yield this greatest harvest potential. So in other words, plowing the soil and planting the seed and irrigating the crop and removing the weeds so it could produce, the, fertilizing the crop, so it could produce the highest potential, the highest yield, the biggest harvest. So that's what God is saying to us. What I've placed in you, cultivate it so you can produce the, the very best Christian life possible. Work out your own salvation. Now, when we use the term salvation, we need to, we need to understand that there's different aspects of salvation. I think most of you, if not all of you, understand that. Biblical salvation involves deliverance from the penalty of sin. What is the penalty of sin? Damnation and hell. So biblical salvation means being delivered from the penalty of sin, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. That before we were saved, we were under God's wrath. But now we've been delivered from his wrath. We've been redeemed. So salvation means deliverance from the penalty of sin, but it also means deliverance from the power of sin. That deliverance from hell, that's deliverance from this world. We're delivered from the power of sin. In other words, God has given you and me as Christians now through the Holy Spirit and through his word, his enablement, the power to live above our sinful temptation, our sinful limitation, the temptations of this world. We don't have to give in to sin. We literally have the power to live above sin. Someone said living above sin doesn't mean that you live your apartments above a dance hall. That's not what it's talking about. Living above sin is is having the Christian character and maturity to say no to the temptation by the Holy Spirit's enablement. So salvation in the Bible means Deliverance from the penalty of sin in hell. Deliverance from the power of sin in this world, Hebrews 7.25. And ultimately, deliverance from the presence of sin. That's in heaven. Someday, all of us who are truly saved, I assume that is most of us, hopefully not all of us here, will be delivered from the presence of sin. We'll be taken out of this world and we'll no longer be tempted to sin because we'll be in heaven. There won't be any sin to tempt us there, but we're delivered from the very presence of sin. So salvation delivers us from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. That's a full orb definition of salvation. That's a complete salvation. Penalty, power, and presence of sin. So When we talk about grace, because we're saved by grace, when we talk about grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, there's two aspects to grace, just like there's three aspects to salvation. Grace means God's unmerited forgiveness to the lost. 
you and I didn't deserve God's forgiveness. It was unmerited. In other words, we didn't deserve it. We can't earn it. So grace means God's unmerited favor to the lost. But it's more than that. It isn't, grace doesn't just apply to lost people, even though we've had to experience that. Grace also means God's divine enablement for the saved. In other words, I can't live the Christian life without God's divine enablement. I can't be a successful Christian, and neither can you, without God's grace operating in your life. Otherwise, we're just, we're just trying to do it in our own strength. And if you try to live the Christian life in your own strength, you will ultimately fail every time because the Christian life is a supernatural life. And it requires grace, God's divine enablement. So grace isn't just for the lost. It's something we need every single day as a Christian. So he says, work out this salvation that God has placed in you. Be conformed to the image of God's Son. The Bible tells us that, Romans 8, 29. So salvation here, in this passage of Scripture, just so we're clear on it, salvation here refers to the daily struggle over the sin nature. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he says. In other words, he's saying uh, your salvation is this daily struggle that we'll have all through life in our temptation towards sin, our struggle against sin, you keep working at it. Yes, there are many challenges in life, even for the Christian, but God wants us to work through them and become stronger by them. And that's why he says, with fear and trembling. We would probably translate that today like other versions do, with reverence and dependence. We, we continue to work out our salvation to live for God with reverence for God and dependence upon his Holy Spirit, his divine enablement. So if we're going to live the Christian life, it requires us an awe of God and a dependence upon the Holy Spirit who enables us to live the Christian life. And that demonstrates that he is living in us. That's proof positive that we've been born again. That's proof positive that we belong to God, that the Holy Spirit is enabling us to live the Christian life. Scripture is so wonderfully balanced, as we all know. Verse 12 deals with the believer's role in sanctification. Let's read it again. Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, not just when I was with you, but now even when I'm away from you, work out your own salvation. Paul says, work out what God has put in you. That's the believer's role, the believer's responsibility. The very next verse, verse 13, is God's role, God's responsibility. What does it say? For it is God who works in you, both to will, both to have the desire and to be able to do what is his pleasure. So verse 12 talks about our role. Verse 13 talks about God's role in this sanctification process. Literally, verse 13, the word works in you is the word energizes. We've all seen the Energizer Bunny commercial. It just keeps on going. And in the Christian life, the Holy Spirit energizes us. We could say he enables us. He equips us. He gives us the power 
to live the Christian life in a way that's pleasing to God. He energizes you, he says in verse 13. Believers have tended to fall into one of two categories, to flop on one side of the road in the ditch or the other side of the road in the ditch. And we can illustrate it really from history, Christian history. Quietism and pietism. Quietism. You may not be real familiar with that movement, but quietism says that sanctification is all of God's doing. All of God's doing. And we don't really play a part. So they say it's all of God's doing. So they have some statements that they have used. It's kind of passed, passed away a little bit. They say, let go and let God. Just, just let go. Just surrender to God and God will mature you. God will grow you. God will sanctify you. Let go and let God. Or they have the saying, I can't, but God can I can't grow up, I can't be mature, I can't be spiritual, but God can make me that. So it tends to lead, quietism tends to be mystical and subjective. On the other hand, pietism, when we think of pietism, we think of the Methodist, the old, not today's Methodist, but the old time Methodist. They were called Methodists because they had a, a method of living the Christian life, memorizing scripture, spending a certain amount of time in prayer, going to preaching, uh, you know, three, four times a week, uh, fasting, etc. They had a method, so they were called Methodists, the Wesleys. But that was a part of pietism. Pietism places strong emphasis on personal study and stringent self-discipline. And they would tend to gravitate more towards legalism and self-righteousness because they were very disciplined. They were very structured. They were very methodical, we would say. And so they, they looked down sometimes at other Christians and, and they uh, cast judgment on them because they felt that they were more righteous. But the scriptural balance is coupling. It's coupling human effort to divine enablement, we would say. That's really what the Bible teaches. It doesn't mean that we just let go and say, well, God, if you want to grow me up, it's up to you because I'm not participating or I'm not doing anything. Not extreme quietism. We can't do that. And, and it isn't all dependent upon us. It is us working but coupling our efforts to divine enablement, saying, God, I'm going to do my part, but I need your enablement. I need your power. I need your filling of the Holy Spirit. That's the balance. And that's what Paul is dealing with here. Now, wouldn't it be silly if somebody took out a blender and threw some uh, threw a banana in there and some strawberries and put some ice in there and then took the blender and started shaking it vigorously. You say, well, how ridiculous. You're just going to have some bruised bananas and some sliced, maybe some notches in the strawberries and the ice will probably be hard. No, you take the blender and you, you plug it into the power outlet and you turn it on and it, it, it emulsifies everything. And then you got a smoothie. But without the power, you probably can't do it with a blender. Or how about a, how about a tree surgeon who climbs up the tree and he's got his belt of tools all over him, his saws and, and stuff in his harness, and he works his way up to the top of the tree and he pulls his, his power saw off and he goes back and forth across the limb with his power saw. You'd say, what an idiot. Turn the saw on. 
pull the ripcord. Let the gas engine do the work. Well, those are simply examples, and those are no more foolish than trying to live the Christian life in your own strength instead of relying upon God's power. So we're saying, Paul is saying, God is telling us, you can't live the Christian life successfully in your own strength. You need divine enablement. Ignis Jan Paderewski, the famous Polish composer, pianist, was once scheduled to perform at one of the great American concert halls for a high society extravaganza. In the audience that day was a mother who brought her nine-year-old son, hoping that if he would hear Paderewski at the piano, he would be inspired and disciplined to stay with the piano and start practicing more. So she brought him to the concert with all these other people that were there dressed in their very best. And she was talking to some of her friends, and he was weary waiting for the concert to begin and he wandered out of his seat and he wandered all the way down to the to the platform where the great big Steinway was sitting and he came up on the stage nobody noticed him until he started hammering out on the keys the one song he knew best which was chopsticks and people began to shout they were aghast and uh, they began to shout, get that boy away from here. But Paderewski was just about to come out. He threw his coat on and he came out and he reached around the boy and he began to play a beautiful counter melody to chopsticks. And he kept whispering in the boy's ears. He said to him, keep going. Don't quit. Keep playing. Don't give up. And when they got done playing, it was a rousing round of applause, not because the boy knew how to play chopsticks, but because Paderewski made it sound so great. That's the Christian life. God is whispering in our ear, even our best efforts, even our, even our diligence isn't really going to bring Bring glory to God unless the Holy Spirit is reaching around us, enabling us to do what we could not do in our own ability. And God says to you, don't give up, don't quit, don't stop. I'm enabling you to do what you could never do on your own. So the first thing Paul tells us in verses 12 and 13, live out what God has put in you, the manifestation is in spiritual growth. Don't quit growing in your Christian life. Don't think you can live the Christian life in your own. The second thing he mentions is in verses 14 through 16. And that's our personal testimony. Let's reread those verses again. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless, harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a, what kind of a world? A crooked and perverse generation amongst whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast, that's this idea right here. Holding fast, hold on to it so you don't drop it, 
but hold it for so others can receive it. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ when I stand before Christ, that I may receive blessing and rejoicing in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain nor labored in vain, that I didn't waste my time there at Philippi that I developed you, I discipled you, and you went on to glorify God. I want to be able to receive a well done in that day. So he talks to them in verses 14 through 16 about their personal testimony, which all of us should be concerned about. I'm saved today because of the personal testimony of Ed Lindsley. As you know, I went to engineering school and was not a believer. I was a party animal. But Ed Lindsley was my roommate who kept witnessing me and sharing the gospel with me. But most of the time, he just lived a Christian life in front of me. And it whetted my appetite. It convicted my soul. And when I was ready, when God had prepared my heart, he led me to Christ. Personal testimony is so important. And Paul is reminding us of that. There's a big difference from being a Christian. There's a big difference in being a Christian and living like a Christian. You can be a Christian here today, be born again, be blood-bought, on your way to heaven, but not really living the Christian life throughout the week. That's what Paul is talking about here. Don't just be a Christian, live like a Christian in your Christian testimony. The first refers to position. The second refers to practice. Being, living, position, practice. We want both. You know, modern Western society is by far the most prosperous culture in the history of mankind. Rome prospered, England prospered at times, but American culture is the most prosperous culture and society in the history of mankind. Except for the very poor, most of us have all we need and a lot of what we want. All we need and much of what we want. But you know what? In America, few people are content. Matter of fact, one of the great plagues of the modern era is the discontentment of Americans. Discontent. Consequently, ours has become a very dissatisfied and even angry, we would say, society. We seem to be surrounded. We seem to be immersed amongst angry people. They manifested in all sorts of ways. For believers, though, he's telling us that flies directly into the faith of these two verses, the next two verses. Being angry, being selfish, wanting more, not being satisfied, being frustrated, that flies exactly against what God is telling us to be like in these verses. He says, do all things without complaining, without arguing. That why? What's the purpose behind that? So that you may become blameless and harmless, that you will live a blameless and harmless life as children of God in the midst of this crooked, twisted, perverted world. They're going to wonder, well, why you got such a good attitude? Why are you so happy? Why are you loving life? You got problems just like me. Well, it's because I'm a Christian. That's what he's telling them. Unsafe people complain and find fault all the time. But he's saying Christians rejoice. Rejoice again 
And I say rejoice is Paul's admonition to us. We're to rejoice. Society is twisted and distorted, but a Christian lives upright. We're not perverted. We're not twisted. We're not distorted. We stand tall. We live pure is what he's saying. Because God's word governs our life. The world is dark, but Christians shine as bright lights. Hey, what's with you? Well, it's because I'm a believer. Let me tell you about Christ. The world has nothing of lasting value to offer, but the Christian holds forth, what does he say? The word of life. So he's contrasting the typical lost person, their frustration, their dissatisfaction, their pointless living with a Christian that, that has all of that because they have Christ. He says, that should be your testimony. Holding forth the word of life. So we live it, we, we live this upright life, but we also hold it forth. We share it with others so they too might have what we have in Christ. Paul does not admonish us or the Philippians to retreat from the world or from society and go into unspiritual isolation, and I would call it that. Paul is not telling us to be hermits, iconoclasts, uh, individuals that retreat from society. No, lights must function where they're needed, and lights function best in darkness. You know, you, you turn the back hall light on or the downstairs light on so you don't trip going down the stairs. You turn it on in the garage when you go out at night so you don't stumble over something. Light does its best work. In, a, in, a, in darkness. And we have the opportunity as our society moves away from the Christian mindset and away from the truth, we have opportunity to shine brighter than we ever have, maybe in American history, because our society is becoming darker. And we stand out even more as Christians. Why is, why is it that the old saying is, why is it that bad news travels around the world while the good news is still lacing up her boots? And it's true. Uh, bad news seems to travel quickly in our society. We hear it every night on the news. And good news seems to progress slowly. But he's saying, put, put feet to the good news. Allow the good news to spread and to travel and, and lace up our boots and, and, and get it done. He's really saying stop complaining, start praising, we could say. That would be one of the principles we draw out of this passage. Stop complaining, start praising God. I, my first ministry, the only other ministry I've been involved in before here was at Falls Baptist Church, as you know if you've been here for any time. And there was a lot of Germans in our church, first-generation Germans that moved to Milwaukee, and they worked for Harness, Schwager, and different German companies that were in Milwaukee, the big crane companies and that kind of thing. And there was a man named Helmut Steckmann. Matter of fact, his son, Volker Steckmann, was at Dr. Nelson's uh, funeral. And uh, his sister, or his uh, cousin, Monica Steckmann, married to Tim Nelson. But... Uh, Helmut Steckman broke, spoke English, broken English, but he was our chairman of our deacons. And 
If you always said, good morning, Helmut, how are you doing? He'd always say, I'm rejoicing in his German accent. He said that every time. I'm rejoicing. And he meant it. He rejoiced. He was rejoicing all the time. Not because his, everything was perfect in his life, but he understood this passage. He understood that Christians are to be rejoicing. And he put it to heart. He lived it out. By the way, all of his kids seem to have headed into ministry too. I'm rejoicing, he would say. So I'm saying to all of us here, it's easy to get negative. It's easy to see the dark side of humanity. People like Ike Beers and many police officers here, you see the worst in humanity, the dark side of humanity. And, and all of us see that from time to time. But we can't go negative. We, we can't give up and we, we can't quit rejoicing. Don't poison the well from which people draw the water of life from. Don't poison the well from which others draw the water of life from by your negative complaining. I've said that to our staff. Listen, don't get negative. You're poisoned the well, and we're the well from which people drink in this ministry. So we have to stay positive in Christ. Not positive mentality, but, but positive in Christ. We rejoice in Christ because if, when we get negative, it, it bitter, embitters the water, the water of life. We can't do that. That doesn't mean that we don't talk about struggles. But ultimately, we know who's in charge. We ultimately know that God is sovereign and that all things work together for good. And I'm talking to some people today that are facing problems. Maybe it's a medical problem. I went and saw Carol yesterday in the hospital. She didn't see that coming. She was very sick when I saw her. I didn't stay real long. Christy was there. Her daughter flew in from Salt Lake. She had been throwing up through the night. She didn't know if it was the medicine or the, they took a section of her intestine and colon out. She, she was not feeling good. So some of you are facing health problems, some of you are facing financial problems, some of you are facing marital problems or familial problems, family problems. That doesn't mean we, you know, we're unrealistic, that we, we're whistling in the dark or something, but it does mean ultimately we know that God is working in our life and we can trust him. The very best outcome is going to, to happen if we trust him and live for him. Third and finally here, look at verses 17 and 18. He's saying, how do we manifest that we're growing in Christ? The third one is in joyful sacrifice. He says here in these verses, yes. Now, this is Paul's personal testimony. Yes, and if I am being poured out, notice if. Paul didn't know if he was going to die during this prison imprisonment, and he didn't. He was released, and he died in prison later but not in this imprisonment. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice of service of your faith, if I'm, if I'm losing my life because I served you in other churches, I'm okay with it. I consider this a drink offering, the final act of worship in my service, he's saying. If I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service 
of your faith or for your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. For the same reason you also are glad and rejoice with me. So the third aspect of allowing God to work in our life is there's joyful service, joyful sacrifice even. In these verses, Paul is comparing his imprisonment to an aspect of worship that certainly the Jews and probably many of the Gentiles were familiar with from the, from the Jewish liturgy and the sacrificial system. The Old Testament, after he had there were different kinds of, of, of offerings, as, as you well know. Some, the priests took the best cuts of the meat, and the rest was burned up. But some were complete sacrifices. Oh, the whole animal was burned up. That was a committed, total sacrifice. The priest didn't get any. The people didn't get any of that meat. So the Old Testament would priest, in a, in a complete sacrifice, would pour the wine over the animal as the last aspect of his priestly duty. He poured the drink offering, it was called, of the wine under the sacrifice to be, that was going to be totally consumed by fire. And it produced a sweet-smelling aroma in the nostrils of God. It, smell, it, it smelled good to God. That it's a picture that God wants all of us to grasp that we sacrifice everything, we surrender everything to God, and that's pleasing to him, Romans 12, 1 and 2. So Paul's imprisonment, and literally his entire ministry, had been a trial by fire. Yet from Paul's vantage point, from Paul's perspective, it was joy-filled and it was a willing sacrifice if he died in Rome, he was glad to do it. If he died in Rome, it was for the gospel's sake, and it was in behalf of the church at Philippi and the other churches that had been started. Paul says, if this is my final sacrifice, it's a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God, and I'm glad to yield it up to him. Wow. Could we say that? Could, could we say that we have that kind of devotion that we want to benefit the church with that same kind of sacrificial mentality? If this is my life, I put it on the altar. God do what's best to, to advance the kingdom. I'm not sure all of us have that mentality. All believers are to present themselves to God as living sacrifices, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your liturgical requirement, your priestly duty, he says. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, he says. So Paul says, if I'm being poured out, which reveals the strong possibility the apostle thought that he may face imminent martyrdom. If I am being poured out, he says, it's okay. I rejoice. I'm glad. And in that way, Paul was emulating 
the self-sacrificing spirit of Christ that we read about last time in in verses 7 and 8. But he made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the the form of a servant, a bondservant, came in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Paul is saying, if this happens to me, I'm just following the pattern of Christ. I'm just doing what he did for us. He sacrificed himself for others. He emptied himself for the cause of Christ. Now, the Philippians were saddened by Paul's imprisonment and the very real specter or prospect of his martyrdom. They they shuddered at that thought that Paul would be taken away from them. But he wanted their despair to be turned into joy for the advancement of the kingdom. He wanted them to rejoice if that's what happened. One of the most tragic events of the Reagan presidency was the Sunday morning terrorist bombing of the Marine base in Beirut, Lebanon. I remember it. In which hundreds of Americans were killed or wounded as they slept there. Many of us can still recall the terrible scene of that multi-story building that came crashing down and killed so many of the Marines that were stationed there. Uh, Days survivors worked to dig out their trapped brothers from beneath the rubble. Well, a few days after the tragedy, the Marine Corps Commandant, the head of the Marines, the Marine Corps Commandant, Paul Kelly, visited some of the wounded survivors who had been airlifted out of Beirut to a military hospital in Frankfurt, Germany. Amongst them was Corporal Jeffrey Lee Nashton, who was in terrible condition. He was in the IC unit. They didn't know if he was going to live or not. He had been severely wounded in the incident. Nashton, someone said, had so many tubes running in and out of his body that a witness said he looked more like a machine. There were so many machines hooked up to him than a survivor. As Commandant Kelly neared him, Nashton recognized who he was. He had never met him, of course, but he recognized him as the head of the Marine Corps. And so he struggled to move. His body was racked with pain, but he he motioned that he wanted something to write with, something to write on. So they gave him a, a pen and a paper. He wrote two words. Semper Fi, which all of us recognize the Marine motto. Always faithful. He wasn't worried about himself. He was saying to his commandant, I will forever be faithful. I'm a Marine. Live or die. I'll be faithful to the cause. Well, the Apostle Paul is saying something very similar. He's saying, I not only will serve God faithfully, I will serve him joyfully, I will serve him humbly, and I will serve him sacrificially. And he's saying to the Philippians, and he's saying to all of us, will you, will you have that same kind of mentality that you'll serve God 
with your testimony, with your life, with your possessions, with your family, with everything that you have. I will sacrifice for the cause of Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. They got it. I hope we do. Maybe you have Christ in you, but you're still trying to work out your salvation. And you're still trying to do it in your own strength. Welcome to Failureville. You can't do that. You will never succeed only by incarnating, as Paul says here, only by letting Christ live in you, living through you, can you access the power and be able to experience the joy and obedience and humility that God has planned for your life. Thanks for listening to sermons from the pulpit at Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at www.redrocksbaptistchurch.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist.